Well, I love being a real-life listener today, don't you? We lucky 21st century we are liberated. Our listening is free like it's never been before, free from the ties that used to bind us to the heavy and environmentally consumptive objects of music's recorded history. We're free from vinyl records and wax cylinders and the shimmering plastics of compact discs. It's all literally free, too. We don't need money to possess music, just to be connected to the network. Music has been atomized. Sound waves are in the ever-present digital ether, turned into a consequence of software instead of the result of flesh and sinew and muscle and instruments. Music is now free even of air. It doesn't need concert halls or caves. It needs only the tiny volume in the spaces between our headphones, her headphones and her eardrums to resonate. Music has been simultaneously etherealized and privatized. This is her music and her pleasure. It belongs to her and her alone. Just as all of our musical ecstasies are now created by our private listening. We don't need and music doesn't need public spaces or large acoustics or communal participation to exist. Now all we need are our smartphones and our headphones and our bliss is complete, just like hers. And it goes on, this delirious freedom, because music's now free of the limits of our listening horizons, since we don't only have to listen to our music, but to every sound that's ever been shared over the network on the ether, which means pretty well every sound that's ever been made and recorded as music in human history. We're physically free, even of wires uh, that used to connect our headphones to our amplifiers. We are free of space and time connected to a non-stop digital rainbow bridge of music that goes further than anything that even John Cage can when he said that music is all around us, we just have to tune into it. Mind you, Edward Elgar said the same thing, actually. But they didn't have smartphones back then, poor saps. They didn't have these mystic rectangles in their pockets that give all of us, at least the nearly three billion smartphones in use uh, all over the planet, nearly half the world's population, access to the whole world of recorded sound, miraculously and instantaneously. Ours is a cost-free existence in which we can surf the musical fantastic in the internal present tense of the digisphere, however we please whenever we please, wherever we are. You want plain chant? Done. Beyonce's latest? Easy. Burt Whistle's operatic over? Well, we've got it there too. Give us more and more. Our ears have no limits. Feed our digital musophilia. Let's gorge together. We've made it, people, to the bright yellow dawn of listening utopia, the grand bouffe of the banquet of listening. Join us. Join her and join the composers, improvisers and digital and analogue creators, Neil Luck, Chihiro Ono and Federico Rubin. And give them another round of applause. And we're also joined throughout today's talk by our avatar who crosses the bridge from the actual to the virtual, who will take us over the threshold from the corporeal to the digital. Meet Hatsune Miku. Miku-san, welcome. Uh, tell us about your life in the digital musical paradise. Hatsune Miku is the name of a Vulcanoid software Facebook, developed by Crypt on Future Media and its official Moray and Morph. A 16-year-old girl with long, turquoise twin tails. She uses Yamaha Corporation's Vocaloid singing synthesizing technology. Tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of songwriters, musicians, and producers have put their words in her mouth. The physiology of her resonators, her articulators, is exploded into our multitude of fans. Digital audio workstations, Azerbaijan or some automotive 
So, Hatsune Miku is uh, digital musical possibility. She's real and virtual. She's an avatar. She's also a plushie. She's also a bride to Japanese men, one in particular at least who really did marry her uh, last year. And she's a vessel of our digital musical hopes and dreams, a conduit between our world and the digital hereafter. And she may also be a harbinger of how a listening utopia curdles into an information abyss. Because what we're going to do uh, today in this event is to sound out the dystopia that lies behind the smiles of the promised land of freedom I've just described. Uh, apologies. Uh, because what's happened to music, thanks to our demands as listeners, is a microcosm of broader trends in the digital world that have destroyed the economics of creativity that threaten our democracies and that have resulted in the realisation of consequences that go far beyond some of the wildest imaginings of sci-fi. We're through the mirror already in a place where some of the, uh, the cost of our digital freedom is only beginning to be counted. And there's a high price that we're all going to pay as listeners and as citizens in the near and longer-term future if we don't realise what's happening. We need to sort out the relationship between the information that we all give up for free, willingly, legally, and often unthinkingly, when we sign those privacy agreements with corporations like Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Spotify, and Twitter, but never bother to read because who has time and what do they need, and I need my social media, and it's our right, don't you know, and I want it now. The relationship between all of that and how our information is being weaponized commercially and digitally against us, which is rather what this image suggests, uh, that the algorithms that guide you to your next playlist on Spotify or that curate your next onslaught of adverts on YouTube or Facebook aren't benignly looking after your interests and the delirious continuation of your eternally digitally sunshiny listening future. Instead, uh, they're doing what corporations have always done, which in this case is to use your listening habits, along with every other part of your digital life, as bits of information that are commercially valuable, hoovering up this legally rendered information to turn it into money, analysing what you listen to, because your tastes can tell them that you're a potential consumer of electronics or household products or of cars or holidays, that you're one kind of voter with one set of political sympathies rather than another. The algorithms are spying on us. Time now for uh, some music. Uh, Neil Chihiro, Federico. What you're hearing here is a demonstration of a new way of hearing music, and specifically violin repertoire. Recognize these pieces at all? Possibly. So, right now, but prepared earlier, uh, Dr. Federico Rubin here has accessed the Application Programming Interface, or API, of the low-yield music streaming software Spotify. So that program, Spotify, uh, thrives on a sort of stream of unending content, streams of music as data, uh, one piece after another, based on algorithmic machine listening, which translates really as recommendation, so recommended music. So what you're hearing here, um, and I don't know if we can bring the level up at all uh, in the booth a little bit. Thank you, that's a little bit better. Yeah, what you're hearing here is a stream of recordings playing directly from Spotify. Um, Federico has hacked the API of the system um, to suggest recommendations based on his reappropriation of the quasi-musical but disturbingly vague categories of data type that Spotify feeds itself with. Um, so, at the minute, we're sampling um, violin music from a pool of how many is it? 
24,101.10 violin tracks on Spotify. But we can focus that down. Federico, can we hear some of the 545 classical violin hits, please? Definitely hits. Now, if we can focus on maybe, uh, let's say, um, Violin Folk has 1,163 tracks attributed to it. That is folk. Yes, works based on folk melodies. Okay, that's a little bit tenuous. And then maybe just can we focus in on one of the... Uh, there's 136 tracks tagged with rock violin. There we go, there's some rock. Now, the, the maybe the more disturbing factor about Spotify, though, is as well as like genre types, it also um, attaches kind of, well, an assessment, a kind of machine uh, automated assessment of certain musical parameters to each track as well. So we can narrow our search down to, uh, for instance, how Spotify judges musical tracks on their, their happiness or their loudness or their danceability and so on and so forth. So, Federico, can we crank the algorithm um, so that we... Can we crank the popularity index to its maximum? So you can see on the screen there, that's yielding us a total number of two songs to choose from. And of course, it's Stravinsky's... Stravinsky's? <laughs> Stravinsky's Four Seasons. Um, or the X Factor theme tune. Okay, what about if we uh, what about if we minimise minimise valence down to a minimum? So a kind of valence being a measure of, of happiness or sadness. Yes, yeah, an objectively sad piece of music. Okay, uh, just a couple more. What about if we um, push the danceability? Uh, parameter to its maximum, please. Wonderful. And how about um, the lowest possible energy track you can find amongst those violin hits? to throw up some strange, some strange outliers, some strange data. What we can do, though, is reverse the polarity of this system. So we have with us today a live, real violinist, Jihiro Ono. 
who's going to play for us. And Federico can analyze or score or judge her playing ability along the lines of the same parameters as Spotify. We can then feed that back into Spotify to see what it, to see, uh, what it throws out as comparable data. Um, so, Jehira, perhaps can you play something for us? Um, first of all, maybe something that's, uh, that's high energy, please. Yeah, maximum on the energy um, index. So you can see on the bottom of the screen there, Jahiro's score. So actually you scored very, very low on the energy index there, <laughs> almost at the bottom. Um, what, does that, what does Spotify sort of see as an equivalent uh, piece of music there? Hmm. Yes, so a damning <laughs> assessment if you're playing. Okay, let's, uh, let's try another couple of things. So um, just then you were playing in, um, <laughs> in key six. Um, could you play something for us in, in a very kind of solid uh, tonal center? A, a, a very clear key, please. Okay, thank you. So there you were playing in the key of... Um, there you are. This is the, the wonders of technology <laughs> and load times. <laughs> Have we crashed? Is that possible, Federico, that we've crashed? Fair enough, I mean. <laughs> no, there you are. So you were playing in the key of five. Uh, let's see what has Spotify can match that key. Same key, right? Yeah, beautiful. Okay, we're going to turn this. Um, we're going to turn this into a bit of a competition now between uh, Chihiro and Spotify. So uh, we're going to kind of keep analysing things and, 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 and build a bit of a kind of competitive duet. So Chihiro, I think now, if you could kind of increase the liveness of your playing, please. was pretty high there that's good maybe if you can bring the um the danceability of your playing is sort of a midpoint at the minute can we increase that please okay beautiful now i think um the valence of your playing is pretty low. You're playing very sadly. Can you play as happily as possible, please? And maybe a bit more in a bit of more popular way. As happy as possible. We want to increase the valence, please. Happy and popular. Let's have a look. Oh no, we weren't listening. Once more, please. <whistles> Federico, can we feed that into the system? Just please. That was fine. Beethoven was fine. Let's see how that turns out. 
Okay, and now let's like let's push it as high as uh, as high as possible to uh, into some sort of finale. So if we can increase the energy to a maximum, I think uh, maybe if you can play in a slightly higher key and um, maximum maximum loudness, please. I think let's just keep going. So. Okay, let's, let's end that experiment there. I think there's some conclusive evidence from there. So, so we've looked at the data, and I think we can see that clearly... Thank you very much. We can see that clearly, as human beings, we're on the cusp of a, of a paradigm shift in, in musical listening. Can machines help us connect kind of more emotionally to be touched in new ways? Thank you. Can we have a round of applause for, for Federico and Gio and Neil? But it's, I mean, that's literally using Spotify's data and algorithms against, well, against and, and with live musicians and showing the, 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 actually the incredibly subjective parameters like those, valence and popularity, things that are being decided by machines that are affecting our listening choices. No, no, you know, no human being is making those decisions. There have been parameters put in in Spotify's computers that have, uh, have conformed to some ideas of those priorities, but they're, they're made up. I mean, they're, they're fictionalised versions of what music can be, and they're affecting everything that we listen to on these streaming services like Spotify um, every day of our lives. But the idea of being spied on by technology, and if we can go back to um, my uh, the keynote presentation, um, it, this far into the history of digital network is, is not a new thing. I mean, some, some of the ideas that you're going to hear today are from James Bridle, who's on the left there, and, and Jerome Lanier on the right. Uh, James Bridle, an uh, artist and uh, technology writer, and on the right, Jerome Lanier, who's one of the founders of virtual reality in Silicon Valley in the 1980s. He's also a musician, and he feels that what's happened to music is really a, a canary down the digital mine of the future. And just to give you a sense of where Jerome Lanier is coming from uh, and our our complicity in this as consumers and as listeners. He says that our trendy gadgets, smartphones and tablets have given us new access to the world. I mean, we can listen to uh, the music of the world as never before. We can find information about almost anything at any time. But we've learned how much our gadgets and our idealistically motivated digital networks are being used to spy on us by ultra-powerful and ultra-remote organisations. We're being dissected uh, more than we dissect. Uh, and he goes on and uh, has some hard words for us. Uh, not only have consumers prioritised flash and laziness over empowerment, I certainly have myself, I may not be alone, but we've also acquiesced to being spied on all the time. The two trends are actually one, because the only way to sell a loss of freedom, which is what's happening every time we sign those privacy agreements unthinkingly, so that people will accept it voluntarily, is by making it look like a great bargain at first. Consumers were offered free stuff, like search and social networking, 
and music streaming in exchange for acquiescing to being spied upon. So we become less and less free with every strong song that we stream, every search term we enter, every social interaction we allow the corporations to host and to monitor. Uh, you're looking at a video, a video shot by Tim Mon in Inner Mongolia in 2014. And these are images that are another part of the story that gives the lie to the idea of the cost-free utopia of our listening. And I just want to trace the journey of what's happening when you press play on your mobile device to hear Bill Withers or Laurie Anderson, the connection between that push of a virtual button uh, to the sounds emerging instantly in your headphones. Uh, the personal costs to this uh, information that we're giving up, Jerome Lanier makes clear, but there's a high environmental cost as well. This is at Bautu in Inner Mongolia, and it's the place where 40% of the world's rare earth metals are mined. And these rare earths are essential in the manufacture of uh, any smartphone uh, that you can think of. Some 62 elements from the periodic table are essential for their production. Superconductive and super insulating and super light diffusing elements. Uh, rare metals like tantalum, neodymium, boron, indium tin oxide, arsenic, lithium cobalt oxide, as well as gold, silver, aluminium, copper, potassium, and more common phenomena, just to mix my metals and compounds up. Uh, but Tim Mons' film is of the tailings dam of the rare earth refinery in Bautu. As you can see, our shiny technology is made in a, a crucible that's a, a reasonable terrestrial simulacrum of hell. Uh, it's hardly a new story either, but the ravaging of what was once pristine Mongolian field and village is shocking in itself let alone the dangerous levels of radiation that have been measured in the mud uh, that was reclaimed from the dam and the exposure that workers here are routinely and inevitably afflicted with, shortening lifespans, human livestock and crops, denuding the environment and providing a vivid reminder that this technology does not come from a white clean factory in Cupertino, California, but has its origins here in this contemporary hellscape. And these rare earth metals are a finite quantity. Scientists say that at least 12 of them are irreplaceable by synthetic replacements. So when they run out, so too does the world's possibility to make new phones and other mobile devices. Uh, well, that's just one of the environmental costs of our listening. The other isn't to do the hardware we keep in our pockets, but the places where the physical data of the song, uh, the symphony, the opera, the music file are stored, and which your streaming service is accessing every time you click on that track uh, you just have to hear. Um, there are thousands of these places um, all over the world. I'm just going to let you watch this for a little bit. Um, the, because the, the, the thing about this place is that... Yes, if we could switch to the other laptop, James, I apologise. Um, these are vast warehouses that we're looking at, um, which, are, which we're soon to look at. And if we can't look at, we'll go back to the other video. But um, they're vast warehouses with scarcely any human activity in them at all. Yet these are places in which so much human interaction and desire is networked together. You thought music was no longer a physical medium. Well, you thought wrong. This is a tour around a Facebook server farm in Oregon in the United States in 2017. And a server farm is simply a place in which hundreds and thousands of computers are networked together to create huge storage and network capabilities to serve the needs of our gigantic social networks and digital megacorporations. And they're often built on previously agricultural territory. They're out of town in cheap land, just shove a massive warehouse down. No one really knows what happens in them and no one really cares. And yet, every time you log on to Facebook to look at that music video that a friend's just shared with you, that data is processed somewhere like this in the world, whether in the US or Scandinavia, where it's cool to cool down all those machines, or in Ireland, where taxes are low. 
Uh, and images uh, like this are proof of one of the great linguistic frauds uh, that's committed by the technological companies over our imaginations, or rather, it proves our complicity in the fantastical work that we want them and our devices to accomplish. And the phrase is the cloud. Because the idea is that our data, every song that we listen to, our entire digital lives, are stored not in a physical space, but up there in the cloud, in the digital ethereum. And what more benign image is there of technology's weightless impact on the earth? What's less insidious in what it suggests is happening to our data and the way that it's used than a cloud, a lovely, fluffy, squidgy, technulonimbus puffing its way along a perfectly blue sky? But the cloud is the wrong word in every conceivable sense. It's not up there. It's not in the air. It's down, it's down here. It's there. The mechanics of the cloud make it the most dehumanized and inconceivable in scale and mass and sheer stuffness among all of the products of music history. A stack of vinyl or CDs has nothing on these serried ranks of data machines and all the ghosts that reside in them. Now, James Bridle puts this brilliantly uh, in, his, uh, in his book, uh, The New, uh, New Dark Age. He says, The cloud is not some magical far faraway place made of water, vapour and radio waves where everything just works. It's a physical infrastructure consisting of phone lines and fibre optics, satellites, cables on the ocean floor and vast warehouses filled with computers. The, the, the cloud doesn't just have a shadow, it has a footprint. And absorbed in the cloud are many of the previously weighty ed edifices of the civic sphere, the places where we shop, bank, socialise, borrow books and vote. Thus obscured, uh, they're rendered less visible and less amenable to critique, uh, investigation, preservation and regulation. So in, in 2012, uh, Google very kindly opened their um, server farms up to the press and here's what we saw. Uh, from the Blade Runner cool of this installation at Council Bluffs, Iowa, uh, to this server farm colouring in kit in Georgia, uh, where the comedy bicycle is for the Sisyphean lone worker. Uh, who's doomed to travel from network interruption to network interruption, a purgatory of colour-coded pipes, then all the world's interaction and digital social activity happening all around you, but with no one to talk to. Like the lone listener, cut off from all of the communities that make music and yet connected to all of the possibilities of the network. Uh, amusingly, they, Google thought it was a, a fun idea to compare themselves to the evil galactic empire of Star Wars. Um, in 2012, that may have been a more innocent image than it is now. But utterly alone and utterly spied upon, we are utterly transparent to the all-seeing eyes of the network. The dreams of Google, Spotify and Apple and everyone else's artificial intelligence and those algorithms. Well, what if those algorithms could look at us just in the way that we've heard Spotify interrogate our listening desires? Well, uh, there's a, Google had a program a few years ago uh, which did precisely that, their artificial intelligence thing, uh, a program called Deep Dream, which looked at the world and we were allowed to see what the computer saw. And this is the computer looking at a plate of spaghetti and meatballs. Um, it's a Lovecraftian nightmare uh, made from the artificially intelligent bowels of the machine. There's plenty more of that online if you search for Google Deep Dream. Enough. Uh, what's going on here? Who can help us to divine the mechanics of these visions from the heart of the technological nightmare? I think we need uh, Hatsune Miku again. Here she is. Google Research. Product of creating an image from nothing that noise. Inceptionism or deep dreaming that these entities are far from mere hallucinations. They reveal the network operations of computational image creation. Certain priests of magic vision 
It's hard wire the new logic, the preferences. In a fleet of genius, inceptionism manages to visualize the concept of closing their networks. Images of Aaron users constantly registering their eye movements. Behavior preferences. Thank you, Miku Sana. The words of the visionary artist and thinker Hito Style there. So Google is turning us all into avatars of their digital, digital inception. Is that our purpose? Are we, is this where our listening ends up, data for the machines? Well, I return now to another kind of reel in the consequences of our listening and all this streaming and everything that's happening in our digital network listening. Uh, Matt Brennan and Kyle Devine of the Universities of Glasgow and Oslo have collated the environmental costs of streaming our music as opposed to buying and producing the physical formats that used to carry it. Now, surely you would have thought that physical behemoths like LPs or those so-called jewel cases of CDs uh, must be much more consumptive of the Earth's resources than us pressing the virtual buttons of our smartphones. Well, just the opposite. They found stunningly, and you can see it at the bottom of, of, this, of this graph there, right next to where the microphone was, <laughs> um, that, the, uh, that it's downloading and streaming songs that is less efficient and uses more greenhouse gases than any other way of consuming music. And that's what the last column there means. Between 200 and 350 million kilograms of greenhouse gases, uh, uh, gas emissions are generated by download and streaming, thanks to all those uh, servers and server farms, uh, which blows, and those, those figures are just for the United States, not for the rest of the world. World. Uh, now, this all blows out of the water, the idea uh, of our music and our wireless listening being free from consequence. Uh, the network is consuming our world just as surely as any other use of fossil fuels. And when we stream music, our listening is plugged in. It's the end point of a chain reaction that might begin on a server farm in Sweden. It might be pinged to a satellite. It crosses an ocean floor, all so that we can hear Björk and Daniel Barenboim uh, whenever and wherever we want to. But all of this is having another cost uh, on the economics of how musicians are living, how they're able to survive, a direct consequence of these listening habits. Across all genres, we stream more music than we consume in any other medium. And according to the British Phonographic Institute's latest numbers, that's how we're hearing nearly two-thirds of all of the music we, we listen to. And uh, informationisbeautiful.net uh, put together a graph here of how many plays it takes for unsigned artists, musicians, to make a living based on the system of, uh, of micropayments per play, again, legal, legally binding documents between uh, music producers and streaming services uh, that everyone from Spotify to YouTube makes to musicians. Uh, this is based, again, on American numbers, but if you were to try to earn or want to earn the American minimum wage, $1,472 a month, uh, here's how many plays you need on each of the streaming platforms uh, a month. The fewest, uh, what is it, 80,000 is on Napster, uh, still going strong, amazingly. Uh, Spotify is on 366,000, and the most is YouTube, uh, where because they only play six ten-thousandths of a dollar for every play of your song, you'd need 2.1 million streams to earn that monthly wage. I mean, that's a lot. That's a, it's a staggering number, in fact, which shows how uneconomic uh, the models of music production have become, thanks to the way, thanks to our listening habits in the face of uh, all the free stuff we get from corporations. And as Jerome Lanny has shown, we're living in a, uh, in a musical era in which great fortunes are amassable by an increasingly tiny number of artists and managers. But that dream of instant success, driven by social networks, attainable by the microscopically few who will ever reach the giddy heights of millions of views and clicks every month, 
is somehow enough to sustain an anti-economy in which the world's musicians, the vast majority of them, are giving everything they do, the fruits of their lives' works, away for free as uploads to social and streaming platforms. The industry has been hollowed out by our listening. Wealth accrues only to those at the top of the chain and the makers of content. Uh, the musicians, uh, the makers of digital content, rather the designers of the, of the architectures through which we listen to music. The musicians, the composers and producers themselves are radically disempowered. Uh, Jérôme Lanier sums up the situation. The principal beneficiaries of the digital music business are the operators of network services that mostly give away the music in exchange for gathering data to improve dossiers and software models of each person. So in an economy in which we consumers don't want to pay for anything, we expect our music to be free, we better be prepared for the apocalypse of musicians' lives that we're creating. It's happened already in journalism, it's happened in music, and it will happen across every other industry too, unless the radical repurposing of the digital economy envisioned by Lanier and others takes place. Lanier's idea, very briefly, and I recommend you buy his book, uh, Who Owns the Future, it's not sponsored by Jean Lanier, this video, nonetheless, um, is that in, in exchange for the information that we give and the way that it's used by, uh, by, by Google and Apple and everyone else, that there should be a system of micropayments given to us as consumers when our information becomes useful. It's a bold idea, uh, but we're a, a long way off. But there are consequences not only for those making music, but for all of us listening to how we're doing it and what we're actually hearing and what music rises to the surface in this dystopia that we live in of illusory freedom, but actual enslavement uh, to those who control our data. Now, one of the hopes of the nearly infinite availability of all audio, audio ever was that our curiosity would be piqued as listeners, so that our horizons would be extended rather than being continually reassured of our prejudices and preferences, and in turn that new musical forms uh, might be made from the streaming universe, given that there are no limitations on the sounds that now constitute a song or a symphony, uh, how long they should be, or what genres they should cross or cannibalise. But in fact, uh, there's evidence that instead of expanding tastes, uh, the bewildering infinity of choice has actually narrowed what we're listening to. This is data from a few years ago, but in 2013, Ed Sheeran had 3 billion plays on Spotify, but 20% of all of the music on the service, 20% of the music on Spotify, had never been played, never been streamed once. At the top 1% of the most popular acts on Spotify and other streaming services account for 75% of their plays. So the gulf between the behemoths of beige at the top and the underground could not be starker. And the substance of what we listen to the most is also changing. Songs are becoming shorter. There's no time for an expansive introduction to your tracks because our listening habits haven't got time to wait around 30 seconds before the hook. You've got to be instantly definable and comprehensible. Otherwise, we'll just click on to the next song to feed our continually insatiable interest. And across whole genres, the figures don't support the idea of a greater diversity in the music we listen to. Uh, this, for example, is the most streamed track in the genre that's called classical uh, last year, with 4.2 million plays in the UK. It's Ludovico Einaudi's White Clouds, and here it is. music, it's a magnificent and melancholy mediocrity, is designed with a, a rapier sharpness for the needs of the oral wallpaper of Spotify's relaxing playlists. It's the definitive sound of today's uh, listening vernacular. 
It's a product made for the modes of digital consumption that we treasure the most today. It sounds weightless, like those network clouds, but it's actually a commercial monster with feet of clay spewing from servers of metal and wire and earthbound heaviness. And it's made from an exquisitely cynical turn of craft into commerce. It's pure musical information, inoffensive, neutral, neutral, pianistic ones and zeros turned into digital. Our listening has changed our music. That's one of the themes of this whole series of talks, that our listening is implicit and complicit in everything that we hear. But I didn't really want it to end like this. <laughs> and the reason you're not hearing evidence of listening as empowerment in this supposed utopia of digital network that we live in is that we are being listened to as well. Now, we are being spied on, for sure, as we've heard through Spotify and through the statements of Jaron Lanier, uh, watched and heard and processed and dissected, but we're also being literally listened to. You have a, a smart speaker at home, well, you're being listened to. Amazon and Google and Apple, or to give them their uh, female technological names, Alexa and Siri, so comforting sitting up there angelically on their clouds, except they're not, they're diffused over a purgatory of wires and servers, are recording everything that we tell them to, and sometimes everything we don't tell them, as some unlucky consumers have discovered when their private conversations were sent to colleagues at work, or when they discovered the speaker was recording everything they said 24 hours a day. And there's a dangerous opacity about what it is that these companies are doing with these recordings. Now, we all, I've said it before, but we sign unthinkingly these privacy agreements. They're changing all the time. Nobody reads them. Theoretically, those recordings are not being made public, except, of course, uh, when they are. But they are being stored in those massive servers we saw earlier, which means that our voices are unambiguously telling these companies everything from our culinary needs to our sexual desires. No surveillance system ever devised by any government in history can compete with the potential of what we're willingly giving these corporations. Our phones and TVs are doing it too, by the way, secretly pairing with each other when, if you have a smart TV at home and a smartphone, they over, over frequencies which we, our human hearing, can't hear. But it's not a song of the bats of mating, it's the mating of, uh, of servers together so that data can be mined from your phone and television so that everyone can know, uh, so that that data too can be bought and sold. What you listen to, what you're watching, what adverts you watch, the things you do, it all goes in to those servers and it all becomes data to be uh, used uh, well, by those corporations uh, with us or against us. Uh, but that means that we're all part of the network and we're all part of the problem. Well, it wasn't supposed to be like this, was it? Our listening communities were supposed to, be, supposed to exponentially grow in depth and meaningful interaction in the digiverse, not reduce us to zombie information providers for the rapaciously commercial data-obsessed more of the network. This is all an inverse, a, a dark side revelation of how powerful we are as listeners. We're all versions of that lone cyclist among the servers, while the digital hum interfaces with itself, creating an infinity of possibilities to which we are excluded as human beings. But wasn't digital utopia supposed to look like this? Uh, this is, although it, it, it is the Daily Star, a reputable organ, uh, but it, it is, um, uh, th this is what Google is now doing uh, in Toronto. It's bought a patch of land on the, uh, on, on the river there, and the idea is they want to design a city from the internet up. 
and this, this is literally happening. This is in collaboration with the Canadian government. Uh, one of their commercial subsidiaries is planning, uh, planning a city which will be entirely driven by data. And uh, among the many things that have not been sorted out is who controls that data and what happens to it. But you have literally happening around us now a situation where listening habits are one part of this, but the, the kinds of spying that I've been talking about, if you think of them like that, are, would be happening 24 hours a day in order to make this city work. The, the people who would, be, who would truly own that data would not, though, be the, currently be the Canadian government. They would be the company. And again, this is all, in my view, just a natural consequence of, of every time we sign those things, the terms and conditions. This is what we're willingly doing. I mean, nobody can blame them, but uh, it's, we're, we're, this is happening. <laughs> um, it, it does look marvellous, though, flying cars and, you know, Blade Runner things. It looks very clean and flashy, doesn't it? Anyway... Uh, Maybe there is a way through this, unless there was some way of us interrogating the network somehow, rather than only uh, becoming zombified in it. Could we listen with it? Could we, could we question it? Could we conjoin with it musically, truly interact with the digital denizens of the servers and make music there? Uh, maybe some more from Hatsune Miku will help. Orators and snapshots, intimate and office communication, TV broadcast, and text messages drift away from us in ruins. A tectonic architecture of the desires and fears of our times. In a few hundred thousand years, extraterrestrial forms of intelligence may equally sift through our world communications. But imagine the perplexity of the creatures when they actually look at the material, because a huge percentage of the data is importantly centering to deep spaces to all its We become spam. <laughs> Cosmic, celestial, universally useless junk. Data floating incomprehensibly and pointlessly through electromagnetic waves all the way to the heat death of the universe. Our dream, dreams resisted again. Even Hatsune Miku and Hito style can't save us. We're lost in data space. So, a bonfire of our listening vanities, in which we've given our agencies as listeners over to a handful of mega-corporations. We're reduced to virtual fertiliser for the server farms who hear and see and interpret and sell all that we are to the highest bidder, scorching the earth of our musical and cultural landscapes just as surely as they poison the well of our politics and our democracy. Well, what can we do? <laughs> How can we reclaim our agency as listeners? How can we once again not only consume and passively generate data, but participate in the creation of musical culture, as listeners have always done, and as this series has tried to show across times and cultures and contexts? Well, there is hope. 
And it's right here in the live personalities and everything that they're doing across the digital and musical sphere that Neil and Chihiro and Federico are up to. It's also there in the way that thinkers like Jerome Lanier, Hito Style, and, and James uh, Bridal uh, envision and, uh, what they think the world can become if we can reclaim some of this agency, and listening is a crucial part of it. And Jerome Lanier's vision for the future is of a reciprocal interaction with technology and an escape from the magical thinking uh, that says that all we need is more and better data, more and better artificial intelligence. He says, the only reason that you have to undervalue people is if you want to support the fantasy that artificial intelligence is a freestanding technology. We're sacrificing ordinary people at the pyramidion of our temple. His dream instead is that individuals will be generating information that's more valuable than the poverty line. And when and if a majority of the population achieves that state, then a new path to societal security would present itself. James Bridal's plea at the end of New Dark Age is for us to think the network, as he says, for us to understand our place relative to the technology we've created and not to be passive consumers, again, but actively engaged participants, conscious listeners. He says the technologies that so inform and shape our present perceptions of reality are not going to go away, and in many cases we should not wish them to. Our current life support systems on a planet of 7.5 billion and rising utterly depend upon them. Our understanding of those systems and their ramifications and of the conscious choices we make in their design in the here and now remain entirely within our capabilities. We're not powerless, we're not without agency and we're not limited by darkness. We only have to think and think again and keep thinking. The network, us and our machines and the things we think and discover together demands it. So what might the music of this mutually beneficial as opposed to one-way feeding of the maw of the network look like, sound like? How can musicians simultaneously resist the digital drivers of big data and use the possibilities of the medium? And how can we listeners participate in that space too? Well, by creating hybrids that sound out and question and celebrate the space between us and technology, that restore our agency as listeners by allowing us into the interaction, by questioning our relationship with digital media, by being live, in the moment, in the present, by being shared now with communities of listeners who are both physical in this room and virtual watching online, and by revealing this music that we're about to hear now, a piece called Fantasy, composed by Neil Luck and performed by him and Chihiro Ono and Federico Rubin. Violin and electronics, real ghosts in the machine, invitations for us to listen and to create with them. Here's Neil Luck's Fantasy.
We've heard a, a brief and partial history of listening and the six lectures that made up this series, but it's the history of the future of that listening that really interests me. How we take our responsibility as listeners to music, to each other, to our societies off and online, that will shape all of our destinies. Resist the big data server farms, recognize your power as a listener, attend to your responsibility and celebrate your creative agency. Listen and listen again and keep listening. <laughs> Thanks to Neil and Federico and Chihiro. Thank you to all for being here. Thank you.